if I told you that this week on Thinking Biblically, we were talking about the book of Job, would you still listen or watch? Please don't turn this off. I have a most delightful conversation with a PhD student in Cambridge, England, who is looking into the book of Job. And I think you're going to learn some things just like I did. Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to remind everyone, if you haven't done so already, to please subscribe. Don't forget to share and to like and review. All that helps. And so it's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Ellie Weiner. Uh, Ellie is joining us today to discuss her interest in, get this, the Book of Job. She's currently a PhD student at the University of Cambridge in England, where she's working on a dissertation on Job. Ellie grew up in the Chicago area and later did undergraduate and graduate studies north of Boston. She graduated from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in May 2002, it's not that long ago, with an MA in Biblical Languages and an MA in Old Testament. In her words, she's an ardent lover of outdoor romps, cups of tea, and exploring how the story and imagery of the Old Testament render the gospel intelligible and breathtakingly beautiful. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Romps and cups of tea. Now, how long have you been in England? I was going to say, that is my my best way of summarizing when I'm asked by a Brit how I'm doing in my transition. I just say, well, I really love to walk and I love tea, so I think I'm getting on well with the UK. Romps? This but, country is made for walking. I tell you, there are footpaths everywhere. Well, I could. Ju you're just skipping through fields of, of daisies on English hills, <laughs> studying with the a, book of Job. precipitation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't dampen my enthusiasm. <laughs> you do, do you take Job along on these romps? So actually, Alan, I haven't let you in on this yet, but I decided on November 11th that I was going to attempt to memorize the book of Job in Hebrew. So actually wow. there is a, a decent amount of time in which I'm traipsing about Cambridge with the Hebrew text of Job, uh, running through my mind. Well, so it's a very impressive plan, and it'll be even more impressive if you actually pull it off. Do it. Well, and I'm over a sixth through so far. Well, in about a month. That, so. That's amazing. And now, you know, you probably will be the only person in the world that has the Book of Job memorized. If ever that's needed, we know who to go to. You have actually done it more for meditative purposes than anything. I expect, obviously, that it'll be helpful in research, but I've just been, yeah, very wary of my own capacity potentially to make this overly abstract, to feel that I've come up with something that sort of hopefully simplified the book of Job in a way that ends up reducing it. So it's actually my way of trying to keep myself under the authority of God's word and really wrestling as I work on this dissertation. So I yeah, just I appreciate yeah, actually, yeah. I, and I appreciate this, your attempt to non, non-reduce. It's actually a great concern of mine, and we'll probably get into that a little bit. And in, in fact, we might get into that right away, because I wanted to 
um, also call out, besides your romps and cups of tea, you say you love exploring how the story and imagery of the Old Testament render the gospel intelligible and breathtakingly beautiful. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that implies that if you don't properly explore the story and imagery of the Old Testament, then the gospel becomes unintelligible? Arguably, yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so, could you explain that in you know twenty five words? No, you could take more than twenty five words. Sure, sure. So I often say that it's important to me to communicate to the church that the gospel doesn't start at Matthew one; that it begins at Genesis one. Mm -hmm. And I just find that as I read the New Testament itself, it certainly seems that the earliest followers of Jesus were understanding who Jesus was and the work that he came to do in terms that were just rife with Old Testament language. So that's what I mean by it's not really even intelligible. Like, how do you describe what the atonement means apart from any symbols and imagery from the Old Testament? You just, you really have no way of understanding why on earth this first century Jewish man is hanging on a Roman cross. Uh, unless you're pulling from the language of the Old Testament, which is what the early church is doing in order to understand this remarkable inbreaking of God's kingdom in a way that was both simultaneously continuous with God's work in the past and yet also surprising in that no one had quite seen this coming, even though in a sense they should have seen it coming. Um so I think I think the New Testament is sort of playing with a paradox there in terms of the continuity and discontinuity of of Jesus and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in light of what had come before in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I'm totally with you on that. Um, but your example of atonement, mm. uh, it seems to me that many Christians, from scholars to the average person, that's an easy one. So in, they may, so the average person may not go through the the steps of getting from uh, Hebrew scripture context to how it's talked about what I like to call the New Covenant writings. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, as soon as you say atonement, there is a bit of a reductionist um, that's that's a bit reductionistic meaning, especially for those that may not understand how I'm using the, the term. Uh, so we run into the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial system. These are, they're given to us in story format mm -hmm. in, in the Hebrew scriptures, but then we come up with a theology based on those stories. Mm. And the, so in the case of this example, it seems to me that there's still a tendency to be reductionistic in that we go from, um, the the scapegoat in this in the instructions for the day of atonement the goat that was sent out into into the wilderness and takes away the sins right and we derive a theology then we take that theology which is now a concept it's not no longer part of a story it doesn't have a context anymore it's a concept and then we take that concept and we stick it in to the the new testament stories so then what we have is the new testament stories then become a way of talking about the concepts rather than a continuation of the yeah. narrative structure of the Hebrew scriptures. Do yeah. you agree with that? That, that just tends to be what we do? 
Absolutely. And then we we have these theologically loaded terms like atonement, for instance, which is itself rooted in a in a concrete Old Testament context. But when we fail to to unpack that suitcase, if you will, and see what's actually loaded into that term, then we often aren't actually communicating very well with each other. And we really reduce the significance of of what the cross accomplishes and and what it means. I just, yeah, I grew up in a Christian context, which I'm I'm so grateful for. And in a lot of ways, it it really rooted me in the scriptures. I did find though that as I was leaving high school, getting into higher education, I found myself still going, now, what exactly does this mean? Like a lot of the language can become very trite very quickly if it's just heard over and over, Jesus died on the cross to save me for my sins. That's such a, an easy shorthand that Christians use all the time, but without actually having a sense of story and imagery, like I said, that doesn't actually make my soul sing, right? So um, yeah, that's I, I totally agree with you. When we sort of make this um, systematic theology transition in between the Old Testament the New Testament or Old Covenant, New Covenant, uh, we can we can lose a lot of the dimension. Um, yeah. So then, how, what's the solution? Oh, solution is solid biblical theology. I yeah, I don't know. Um, and by, how, you're meaning that like keep inside the stories. Is that the key? Yeah, yeah. I would say. Um, hmm. So for one, okay, if we start with with children, right? Because any any issues that we have in the church writ large arguably could begin with the way that we teach or don't teach children well. So I think for one, not to be so atomizing in the way that we teach uh, what the Old Testament is to kids. So, I mean, if kids are only exposed to sort of Noah's Ark and Daniel in the lion's den and Joseph and his multicolored coat sort of in isolation, um, then it can create the sense that the Old Testament is sort of this grab bag of semi-fanciful stories that just feel so far off, as opposed to helping, even from a, a very young age, kids to see what is actually the sweep of the biblical narrative. I think of ancient Israel, what was their education like? Well, at Passover, <laughs> every year you have this liturgical rhythm of teaching in the family what it is to be a people who derive their very identity from the saving acts of God in history, which, I mean, hello, we have an Exodus, New Exodus motif just handed to us right there in scripture um, to have a sense of what our identity really is as Christians um, yeah, and at the beginning of this of the Passover Seder, we say this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Um, mm. So we connect. We have a symbol of as if the original stuff was right in front of us, and then we talk. In fact, it's in no, it's it's in Exodus, I believe. It's somewhere in the Torah when your child when your uh, your son asks you, why do we do these things? Your answer is because of what the Lord did for me. Mm -hmm. Every generation says for what the Lord did for me when he took us out of Egypt. So we're drawn right back into that story. We become participants in our story. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and really that's, you know, in all storytelling, the best storytelling is we draw the person into the story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there is a, a tendency. We don't teach Bible like that. And I do teach uh, grades five through eight in a small right. Christian classical academy here in Ottawa. And, you know, my, my goal, whether it's adults or children, there is this tendency to turn Bible stories into something like Aesop's fables where mm -hmm. so we could start with the story, but we reduce yeah. it down. Now we've got a moral, but the Bible stories don't work like that. And, no. you know, I'm, I'm talking yeah, to the to one here. <laughs> was, yeah. And to be attentive to the, the development of themes. I mean, I think if, if, we don't spend a good, good deal of time in Genesis 1 to 3. We're going to miss so much of what the rest of the biblical story is trying to do. Um, yeah, and I, I totally agree with you as well. It can be so easy to just try to reduce a narrative, say, or a law to a moral tidbit from my back pocket. And now it feels manageable somehow. Like maybe we're just expecting the Bible to be easier. Um, that it should just be obviously apparent and should have a one-to-one -one correspondence with now something that I go do. Um, but yeah, oh, yeah. this is meant to be a lifetime of meditation and steeping that transforms us uh, to make us a people of wisdom who then led by the spirit can choose the right tree, right? I mean, like that's the, yeah, that's the story we're living in. Yeah, so I just want to go on record again, everybody watching, listening, this whole thing about narrative structure of the scripture, it's something that I'm hopefully going to bring up over and over again, because we're really missing something when we when we take the Bible out of that story context. Um, the funny part is, and maybe it's not so funny, every time I address it, I'm addressing it in what we call a more reductionist, reductionist sort of way, explaining point by point why we should study the Bible in its story context instead of telling stories. So I'm not, well, we've all been affected by this approach to education, this approach to uh, communicating information. We do tend to do it in this uh, a very, um, uh, what's the word, like propositional sort of way, right? Uh, and yet, what do people remember from sermons? The illustrations, it's the stories. <laughs> so let's get into one of the big stories in the within the Bible story, and that's the book of Job. And let me start by asking you, why Job? Yeah, I, I do get that a lot, Alan. <laughs> I also find that uh, that people tend to give me a lot more sympathy than I'm really looking for when I tell them that I'm studying the book of Job. <laughs> right, like, but so, I really don't uh, see it as a uh, cause for Ellie, pity. Ellie, Ellie, Job, who made you do that? <laughs> I know, I know, I promise there was no coercion involved. <laughs> and she's yeah, laughing, so people why? notice she's laughing. That's right. I will see, talk to me in three years, but I really, I trust in the Lord that my joy will be undiminished and will only be all the more abounding for the riches of this meditation. So, so we're not going to uh, so, lose. We're not going to lose the train of thought. But because you talked about yes. the three years, I thought I'd throw in here. Ellie and I have a plan. As we discussed about doing this, we don't know if we're going to be able to do it. We don't know where we're going to be. We don't know if we're going to be alive. Uh, but the plan is, um, Ellie's just recently started her work on Job for this dissertation, and so we thought it would be good to maybe meet up halfway through, see how things are going. So all being well, that'd be about a year and a half from now. And then after it's done to meet again. 
So that's our plan. Don't know if we could do it, but it's be very interesting to 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 track with Ellie to see how this thing is going as she gets deeper and deeper into this book. Okay, so let's yes. So, so let's get back to the question: Why Job? Why Job? Yes. So I will say that I did not initially set out to do the book of Job when I was contemplating getting a PhD in Old Testament. So I. Um, what I ended up doing was deciding to prioritize the methodology by which I was going to be carrying out my research over the particular aspect of the biblical corpus. So initially, if you had asked me, because I love biblical theology so much, I would have said, oh, I'll probably be in the Pentateuch, be in the Torah. Um, but yeah, ended up, as I say, deciding that I would really prioritize being able to do my research in sort of a literary theological methodology. Uh, so it's an unfortunate feature, I think, of of uh, biblical scholarship now that oftentimes there's quite a bifurcation between biblical studies and theology. And so it's not necessarily the case that one is able to engage in theological readings uh, of of biblical texts in the academy. Uh, so I found can a I stop, Can I stop poem. again? I'm really sorry. Yes, uh, no, please. Because assuming that many of our listeners and viewers don't understand some of these things, um, sure. can you explain the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology Ooh. and why there is a, a, a clash between the two? Can you do that briefly? Is that possible? Because uh, we want to get back into sure. Job. But there is some suffering in, with this topic too, so go for it. Yes, yes. Uh, so I, yeah, I'll do my best to give a thumbnail. This was a question I found myself asking very quickly in my own undergrad program, and how I typically interact with the with the different terms um, is that I think of biblical theology as being attentive to a particular image or narrative thread that runs its way from Genesis to Revelation with, you know, various permutations along the way. Uh, but it's a very textually tied way of going about uh, perceiving coherence in the biblical text, whereas systematic theology is um, more of seeking to integrate uh, biblical, biblical content with a with sort of a, a philosophical or a logical framework for organizing, um, yeah, organizing uh, topics related to God and and Christian worldview uh, in in categories. Um, so is that is that helpful? Is there anything else I need? Yeah. To the, so most. People reading a systematic theology book, and in a systematic mm. theology book would have chapters on God, uh, yeah. the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, sin, salvation. So those, which you mentioned, mm. the topics. Yeah, but uh, for Bible believers, we would mm. see a good systematic theology is one that bases all of its assertions on mm. references in the Scripture, and you go to the there's a real scripture index in the in the back of the book and it'll be pages right. and pages and pages of of scriptures and so uh i think a lot of people simply think of systematic theology as 
almost like a massive word study or a concept study. You know, we'll do love of God and go through everywhere love of God appears in the Bible and stick it into a chapter. And I don't mean to be facetious in any way, but, but that's that's the goal. But you said something um, mm. that I, I, is there a way to know, is this fully absolutely true? Because you talked about, I don't know if you called it a philosophical lens, but it was that sort of idea yeah. that in systematic theology, it's more than just organizing the Bible according to topic, which again, mm. I think a lot of people think that's what they're reading when they're reading a systematic theology. But you're saying there's a, there's a philosophy thing going on there. Is that 100% true? I would say it's... It's generally true as I understand it, meaning that I think if you pick up a systematic theology from different time periods, you'll be able to discern some differences based on sort of the intellectual currents that the systematic theologian is swimming in, and also based on um, their epistemology. So epistemology just being how you know things. So uh, you may have a systematic theology that takes as its point of departure revelation. So how do we actually know we need to start there and talk about God's self-revealing through creation and through word? Um, whereas you may have another systematic theology that just starts with the existence of God and you get sort of a Trinitarian framework for your for your systematic theology. So I think there's there's an epistemology that affects sort of your your starting place and the way that you organize the topics and what you actually highlight and sort of bring to the fore. Um, I mean, if you yeah, if you also picked up a, a systematic theology by a Pentecostal theologian, it would look a bit different than if you pick up a systematic theology by fill in the blank, another another kind of theologian. Okay, so for argument's sake, if if that's true, that the basically the writer's bias has quite an effect upon the systematic theology, how is that avoided in biblical theology? Mm. Uh, yes and no, I think avoided. So I think it's, yeah, just really helpful to be aware as a general rule that we are always interpreters as humans. So there's no such thing as just sort of the plain objective reading of the text. We're always trying to cross time and space uh, and culture as we engage with the biblical text, whether that's toward the end of systematic theology or biblical theology. So we can never sort of, I, I can never have a reading of the biblical text that isn't colored by the Ellie glasses that I wear. I mean, I just, yeah, I can only see through my own set of lenses. Um, I think biblical theology done well is doing a lot of really hard work to cross that time, space, culture gap and to understand the given context of a passage and then to really sensitively link those together. Uh, and I think likewise, a systematic theology done well is going to be really self-aware about its own sort of philosophical, theological slant. Um, and yeah, it's not to say that that my particular locatedness as an interpreter is a bad thing. No, it's inevitable. But I think it's just more important than anything to be aware of it, uh, to be honest about it, and then to be in conversation across difference 
as a community of interpreters uh, so that we can actually uh, help each other to see our own locatedness and that we may want to absolutize something that's actually um, just particular to my um, my reading. So yeah, I would say that. So, so I, have, I have a little tool. You could tell me what you think. So this is an interpretive tool that I try to use. Um, and of course, this would probably lean more towards a systematic approach. So if I'm studying a concept, be it the love of God or predestination and, and God's sovereignty. And so I study what I think are relevant passages, and then I come to a tentative conclusion based on my studies. Well, then I try to take that conclusion and take the conclusion back to the Bible and see if my conclusion holds up. Yeah. And, and now I keep going back, keep referencing back to the Bible. Yeah, I think that's so helpful because one of the things that now, OK, I realize I'm speaking as someone who's partial to biblical studies and biblical theology. So I need to have systematic theologians in my life that I'm that I'm learning from and in conversation with. But something that I always um, wanted to be careful of with systematic theology is that it's not enforcing sort of undo um uh an undue structure on the biblical text that's reducing some of its complexity so oftentimes you just have these inherent tensions or unexplained features of the biblical text that i think we um maybe in our hastiness to to feel like we understand and we're sort of in control and have the upper hand we can over systematize uh at at times that can be actually detrimental to our understanding of the text. So I think that's a really helpful check against that actually to be then putting your conclusion back under the scrutiny of scripture and just seeing, yeah, how does this, how does this match up? Yeah. And this is something that everybody can do. This is not just for scholars. Mm -hmm. um, so back again, we haven't answered the question yet. Why Job? <laughs> that's right. Well, we had, yeah. This is um, rather like the dialogue cycles in the book of Job, though they're quite cyclical, <laughs> a bit verbose, but they make a... Uh, hey, are you, what are you saying? No, no, <laughs> verbosity on my end, not yours. <laughs> All right, so why Job? Okay, so I'm prioritizing methodology, I decided. So I want to be able to do a unified reading of the book of Job and have... Uh, have attention to what is the theological import of this text. And I found a scholar at Cambridge named Catherine Dell, who is um, doing a lot of work that's literary, theological in nature. And she's been uh, at Cambridge a good while. And I had really good recommendations from several former students, current students, people that know her. Uh, and she happens to have done a lot of her own work in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and other other poetical books in, in the Old Testament. So got in contact with her and then had to come up with a proposal that would be <laughs> somewhat within her own field of, of interest and expertise. Uh, so I was thinking back to a class I took called Wisdom Literature when I was in undergrad. And um, yeah, in that class, wow, it really transformed the way that I had interacted with the book of Job. I would say actually previously I had no idea what to do with the book of Job. And at least in this class, it gave me um yeah, a new, a new way of of perceiving what I think now is one of the primary theological thrusts of the book. Um 
And essentially a way of putting that in brief is that when I think about my um, summons to be an intercessor for others, I think first of the book of Job. And that was because of that class in undergrad that I that I came to that conclusion. And so then I, um, yeah, took this the seeds of ideas that I had from that undergrad class did a bit more work uh, interacting with secondary literature, seeing what other scholars have done with the book, came up with a proposal. Apparently my supervisor thought it was viable and here I am. <laughs> Does it have, a, do you have a, a working title? I do, yes. So it's a bit different actually than what I wrote in my proposal originally, but that's quite common to have things modulate a bit in the first year. But right now my working title is Taking Sides, colon, a relational interpretive framework for the book of Job. Oh, there's relations in the book of Job, all right. <laughs> quite a few, quite um, a few. But I'd like, could we, should I ask, are you saying Job has an, himself has an intercessory function? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So he's portrayed. He? So first, of, can you define for those? So I'm I'm coming with uh, with my own understanding. So how are you using the word, and how is Job an intercessor? Sure. Yeah. So intercessor, uh, thinking in very general terms, someone who's going between. So in the context of the Old Testament, that means going between God and other humans. In the case of some. Uh, some offense that other humans have committed. The intercessor stands in the gap, if you will, to borrow the prophetic uh, language. Uh, yeah, standing in the gap between God and, and other humans. So I see Job at the outset, not just me, but others as well, see Job at the outset of the book uh, in, um, let's say, the be verse four, uh, sorry, verse five, he is portrayed as offering sacrifices on behalf of his children, just in case they may have cursed God in their hearts. So he's he's offering these ascension offerings on their behalf. And then um, I can circle back in a second, if you want, to how I see some of these relational dynamics playing out throughout the whole book. But then if we... Um, hop back in with Job in the epilogue. He's an intercessor in a different way for the three friends, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar. So there's no sacrifices that he offers there. Actually, the friends are responsible to bring sacrifices, but it's on account of Job's prayer, actually, for these friends that that God, uh, well, basically, yeah, withholds his, his anger from them. Uh, this is the only time in the book that God is said to be to burn with anger. Interestingly, um, Elihu burned with anger at Job. God never burned with anger toward Job, but he did at the at the three friends at the end. And so it was, um, yeah, as I say, on account of Job's intercession that um, that God forgives the friends. And then that actually is the the narrative kickstart to Job's restoration. But what about all the stuff in between? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where people get lost and they wonder what's I going know. on. So and they I'm end actually... up quoting Job's friends as wonderful verses about God and life. I know. Oh, my goodness. So much we can say about... But, well, let's stick with the intercessor thing. Is there an intercessory okay. role he's playing through all those chapters of him suffering and is complaining or whatever he's, you know blaming yeah. God or calling God to appear with him in court and some of these things that come up in the book. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to back out for a second and look at relational dynamics more broadly in the book. So the reason why I haven't gone so narrowly for intercession in the title of my thesis is because I'm actually trying to have a framework that's a little bit broader to account for more of what's going on in the book. Uh, So when I say taking sides, essentially, I'm trying to look at how all of the relational dynamics in the book, as I see it, fall on this dichotomy of being for or against being advocate or being adversary. Um, So as we see in the beginning of the book, Job is this intercessor for his friends. He's a paragon of wisdom. He's flourishing by by every measure. And and, and he's, yeah, so he's well with God and he's well with humans. So this works on the divine human plane and interpersonal plane. And then you have, lo and behold, the character Hasatan, whose name in Hebrew means the adversary, uh, who both undermines the legitimacy, the genuineness of, of Job's allegiance to God, and then also is trying to undermine the way that God is running the world. Um, and so that then, yeah, creates, well, this these now consequences of of suffering in in Job's life. And I don't think that the book of Job is actually about suffering. I think actually suffering is more of this foil to explore these relational dynamics that are going on, to explore these larger questions about how, like, does the fear of the Lord actually work in a world where things happen ostensibly without cause? How do we actually... um, yeah, what is there to be said for living with allegiance to God in that sort of world? So you're saying um, you're saying it's not trying to answer the question why do the righteous suffer as much as the suffering is the story context to work out some more important issues. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I think Job is set up as this deliberately extreme case. Almost let's argue from the greater to the lesser. So if we take the most righteous, most wise person we can imagine, who's flourishing in every respect, put him through the most extreme, incongruous, sudden suffering imaginable, then what happens? You know, so I think it's I think the suffering is yeah, is is meant to um be this this pretext for exploring uh actually what are what are the relational underpinnings of a wise life? Because ultimately wisdom, as we see in chapter 28, is fearing the Lord and shunning evil. There is no wisdom apart from God Himself being in relationship with God Himself. But that has repercussions as well for the way we relate to each other. Uh so then just to sort of move us a bit further through the book, as the uh, so you have Job's wife then turns against him, actually acts like the adversary, uses the adversary's words, Hasatan's words toward Job. Um, then the friends arrive and they start out seeming like they're on Job's side. They seem allied with him, joining in his suffering. Uh, but then then Job opens his mouth and, wow, we unleash many chapters of of many words. And I think we see as we move throughout the dialogues that actually the crux of Job's suffering or the crux of his agony is not actually the specific disasters that befell him in the in the prologue, but it's actually the sense that God has turned against me. God, who used to be my friend and ally, has become my enemy and he's attacking me and I don't know why. Um, and then add to that, that, yeah, this is all exacerbated by the fact that then his words make the friends 
think that they're taking God's side to defend God, but in effect, what they're doing is actually turning against Job and adding to the attack, which then leaves Job in this place of saying, okay, I need, I need an audience with God. Like I have to, I have no other choice, but to press my case with God. And these friends who were supposed to be on my side, giving me some help are worthless comforters to me. Can't rely on them, but I'm just going to keep even more brazenly pressing my case with God, demanding that he answer me. And then you even have these curious passages in chapters 16 and 19, where he's expecting some kind of heavenly advocate, some kind of witness in heaven or redeemer in chapter 19. And it's not really, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different opinions on on what Job is, is looking for there, but suffice to say, he keeps pressing his case with God and then I think the way that the book is resolving is actually relational in the end. So when God responds to Job out of the whirlwind, I don't see him as belittling, crushing, demeaning Job. I actually see him as, as well, profoundly dignifying him for one and answering him, the fact that he even answers Job, and then leads him through this revelatory experience that's also humbling. Like Job is is rebuked, certainly, but he also can say at the end in chapter 42, my ear had heard of you, but now my eye has seen you. He's actually been drawn closer. Uh, He's been restored in relationship with God uh, by God's showing up to answer him. Um, And then Job is swiftly implicated in the restoration of the friends in relationship with God. So we see this pulling together of the divine human and the interpersonal planes of relationship. And so there needs to be restoration as well, where Job's intercession actually forces him to get on the same side of the very ones who were against him. Uh, And just one more piece I'll add real quick here. Oh, English translations are wonderful in so many ways. I'm very grateful for them. Occasionally, occasionally, there is what I think of as an unfortunate miss in translation. And one of these is in Job chapter 42, verses seven and eight. So this was a detail that was pointed out to me in that undergrad class uh, that was one of the seeds of this uh, larger proposal. So when God's talking to Eliphaz and well, via him, the other friends as well. He says, you have not spoken. And then English translations say of or about me in the right way as my servant Job has. And uh, I think far and above for reasons I can elaborate if you wish, that the better translation of that would be you have not spoken to me rightly or or reliably as my servant Job has. And so that actually reframes the way we evaluate the dialogue. So instead of saying who is more relatively doctrinally correct in what they said, it's actually more about the direction of speaking. Uh, So Job, as we look backward on the dialogues, has many times engaged in the second person address of God. And the friends have only ever spoken to Job about God. And so I think actually the crux of their rebuke is you ought to have been speaking to me, to God about Job, rather than speaking to Job about God. Um, So that's how I see uh, that sort of coming together in the epilogue. So I was warned about this. Uh, So uh, people uh, who um, 
are have attended my Old Testament course and have watched Thinking Biblically Know About My Son Daniel, and that's how uh, I uh, was able to get in touch with with Ellie, and uh, he recommended her. So thank you, thank you, Daniel, for that. But he mentioned this thing about this verse that I often like to quote, talking about the Book of Job. And yeah. uh, not to get too technical, and I should have looked it up before we started, but is, is the issue over a Lamed? So it's the preposition L. Right. In Hebrew. Yeah, yes. so. Well, is, is, it, is it the same as, as Le David in the Psalms? No, no. So it's Deber plus L. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, Aleph Lamed. And that combination okay, okay. So often in the act of speaking in in the Old Testament, over it often does mean two, right? And it often does mean two. Yeah, yeah. So the basic sense of that preposition is to or toward, and I mean, I would say in almost every single instance of its over six hundred occurrences with the verb to speak, de bear here, um, in the Old Testament, it very obviously is about the direction of speaking, who you're speaking. To, oh, to whom so to and not about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and actually, most English just translations prior, say, yeah, most English translations prior, say it has to do with uh, how Job was speaking about God, which yeah, of course, so from they, the reader's point of view, that's that's compelling because he actually has been quite aggressive. I don't deserve this, and basically, it's God affirming the details of of what Job said. That even yeah, though it sounds harsh, that's how we normally take it, right? Right. But, but you're saying it's more is... about the direction. It's more about the relationship that Job took his case to God. Yeah. While the, yeah. who knows what the friends were doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think what they ought to have been doing, essentially God's saying to them, you took the wrong side. Like, I don't need you to defend me to Job. Why don't you get on Job's side and intercede, no. intercede for him. Um, all all throughout the dialogues, you have Job just crying out, like, is anybody going to get on my side? All help has been driven from me, he says. All resources have been driven from me. I have no help left in me. And, um, yeah, and there, there are the friends right around me saying, you're, you're just attacking me, just the same. Mm -hmm. What good are you? Um, yeah, and so I think when you read spoken of or about me then we go oh okay i like to evaluate doctrine so let me go and and uh measure up everybody's words but the tricky thing there is that the friends have said a lot of things that ostensibly looks rather uh rather uh normal theologically i mean if we're thinking yeah, of not everything but yeah a lot yeah, yeah but some of it i think actually they're they're representing in a way sort of a misappropriation of something like Torah or the book of Proverbs. So, um, yeah, essentially a, a reduction of that to say that there's a really neat correspondence between uh, actions and consequences. So that always, if you if you put in X, you'll get Y. Um, and the friends have sort of taken that and characterized it and pushed it to the extreme where they start accusing Job of all sorts of blatant evil, which he has definitely not done. I mean, we've had the fourfold description of his character from the beginning of the book, that he's blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. Um, yeah, so, I just want to make one thing I want to make sure when people hear yeah. what you're saying, which I agree with, yeah. um, there, 
any expression in scripture that gives the impression that X necessarily leads to Y. So do good, get blessed, do wrong, get cursed. Scripturally speaking, even though we have references like that in Torah and Book of Deuteronomy, that sort of idea, when we actually read the Bible, be it Job, be it Samuel and Kings, it's way more complicated than that. And Job is a wonderful uh, reflection of biblical truth about whether or not do good necessarily leads to uh, to blessing. And there are some popular writers out there that give the impression that that's Old Testament. And then the New Testament, it's now different. But no, no, no. There's one biblical theology with regard to how uh, rewards work, blessing, suffering, and it's way more complex as we see in the book of Job. Yeah. Yeah. I think books like Job and Ecclesiastes are such a resource to the church in making our faith so much more gritty. Not just because, to the church. Don't, don't you mean to the world, Ellie? Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, yes, you, I didn't, I didn't think we should just keep it. You know, people shouldn't keep this stuff sure. to themselves. No, no, I'm not sitting on the treasures of the book of Job. Heaven forfend. I would this is not. for everyone. <laughs> no, truly. But I think it's actually, speaking of witness in the world, I think it's really, uh, well, adds credibility to Christian faith, maybe, because there can be this... Um, from the outside, maybe perception that Christians are just sort of happy-go-lucky and plaster a smile and everything's fine in a really triumphant, um, yeah, sense of of what Christians believe, uh, and they're they're just trying to do a bunch of good things to get to God, just like every other world religion could be a, a sense that uh, that some have. But yeah, when you read a book like Job, you say, oh no, actually, the biblical text is so much more nuance. It's very real about the frustrations of life and the unanswered questions. It's not a theodicy proper in terms of offering sort of a neat rationale, a logical argument. I think essentially the answer to the book of Job is behold the Lord. He is creator. You are creature. The only way to live well in this, in this world is by the fear of the Lord. Um, like that is that is the wise life and and that is your lot as a creature and it's actually it's a good life to live and it's it's really the only way to live to make our way um so thank you i i receive that correction very much for the world <laughs> and for the church um yeah and i've yeah. actually encountered and talked about you know some people who believe a very strong uh follow the Lord correctly, you're going to be blessed and, you know, with wealth and health and all the rest and try to bring up the book of Job and they'll say, oh, that's Old Testament. And it's such a um, a, a poor understanding of, of scripture, period. And, yeah. and aren't you following a suffering Messiah who said to follow in his footsteps, we too need to suffer? And once you understand that, I know that if if you're right, the book about jo a book of Job is not about suffering, but suffering is a is a mighty fine example of yeah. how to work out those things that are in the book of Job. I'm also wondering too, if we do talk in a, in a year and a half, are you still yeah. going to say the book of Job is not primarily about suffering? It's uh, a good question. Maybe but, I'll walk everything back in a year and a yeah. half. But <laughs> See, one one of the things I've discovered in my own life, often when I'm preparing a message. Uh, I'll find that God will put me through an experience in, in part of that preparation. Um, so um, 
I don't know how God's going to God's going to teach you the book of Job. I certainly don't wish any hardship upon you. The fact mm -hmm. is we're told by the by Yeshua himself that we will face trouble. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the book of Job is an excellent resource that God has graced us with in order to know how to how to navigate troubles and everything else in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, just a couple comments related to that. I think when I was growing up as a Bible reader, I really struggled with the book of Job, particular well, for a number of reasons. But one of them was that it just felt too extreme for me. So I'm not as righteous as Job. I don't think anyone could say to me that I'm blameless, upright, that I fear God, that I shun evil, nor have I experienced anything close to the caliber of suffering that he has. Uh, that he that he did or he's portrayed to have in the book. Uh, but now I'm actually starting to see that as a really brilliant strategy of the book to make it universal. So if we deal with the most extreme case there is by looking at, as I say, the the most wise who goes who goes through the worst kind of suffering, then it also holds true for all of us in whatever varieties of life experiences we have. Um, that we can say, okay, the fear of the Lord is still the way to live. It's still worth it. Um, so I think that's really helpful. And also I had someone say to me, a friend who had experienced chronic pain for quite some time, she said, yeah, when I was going through that really difficult experience, I had a lot of people recommend the book of Job to me. And frankly, I just didn't have the energy for it right then. Like that was just, I was not in a place where I could really wrestle with this text. So she was just encouraging me saying, yeah, I think it's really important that you're working through these things and teaching them to people now, because this is the sort of resource we need to have built up to be at the ready, to actually be ready to be intercessors for brothers and sisters who are going through really difficult circumstances and ourselves to have this kind of gritty faith, as I say, that's uh yeah, that's able to last through whatever whatever circumstances occur in life. So, yeah, I, uh, wow, just say, all right, Lord, do with me what you will. I think this dissertation will be instructive and character building perhaps more than anything. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a biblical concept that there's a Hebrew term for it, which I, I wish I could remember. Maybe you know what it is, but the idea that if this is true, how much more this oh a calva homer argument thank you yeah that's yeah. that's the one and that's what you're saying that yeah. mm -hmm. the the design of of this incredible store not incredible i hate that word and that <laughs> this this wonderful i mean that's not a great word either this <laughs> unique story of job in its uniqueness through its extremes actually says to us if this works for job how much more us who are not yeah. quite like him and are not enduring the level of suffering that he did how much more should the lessons of the book uh apply to our lives mm -hmm. uh, and there's one more one thing and, and we we probably should close with, with this but there's something that i caught i don't know if if this is in your mind and heart already uh mm -hmm. as you were describing the failure of job's friends yeah. in what they should have done how yeah. that's telling us that when we're hearing about the troubles of others, and I'm, I'm particularly thinking of government leaders, religious mm -hmm. leaders that get into big trouble, 
They're doing things and saying things that are not good. And I know in Job's case, he's a righteous man. But the, I think the lesson is the same. It's so easy for us to, to especially in our day, we, we focus on someone's failures and we just bludgeon that person to death publicly. And we love talking to one another about somebody else's fa failings and we derive some sort of, it's just, I guess it's self-righteousness, right? As opposed to taking that person to God. Yeah. And so whether you intended to share that or not, that's what I got out of this. And it's a, quite a yeah. challenge. And I think it should be a challenge to all of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I really, yeah, really chastened by the awareness as I, as I go through the process of doing this PhD, that for everything that I'm saying about the book of Job and about God, as I be, as I'm doing this work, I want to be all the more zealously talking to God, speaking to God, and yeah, bringing before Him uh, the the people and the circumstances around me. And yeah, absolutely, I think that's well said. Yeah. Now, before we started, Ellie, I mentioned that I normally uh, ask my guests if there's any way that people can contact them. But before you share that uh, with our audience, I want to suggest that you know maybe you have some questions uh, for Ellie. But maybe after hearing this, you want to pray for her. This is not an easy task before her. And maybe the Lord is putting Ellie on your heart and you can be an intercessor on her behalf as she goes through these next uh, three years of working on this dissertation. So maybe you want to be one of those people and maybe you want to reach out to her to let her know that you're praying for her. So whether it's intercessory concern or you have a question or a comment that you'd like to send off to her what's the best way to contact you ellie yeah thank you so much you can feel free to email me i'd love to hear from you if you're interested in doing that so uh, my email which i think will be in in some notes associated with this as well but my email is e m w so e m w 78 at cam cam.ac.uk. So that's my Cambridge University email address. I'd love to love to hear from you. That's excellent. And yeah, and as Ellie said, that will be in the description. That's emw78 at cam with an m cam.ac.uk. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for uh, coming on uh, Thinking Biblically with me to discuss this, the book of Job. Uh, hopefully this will spark more interest in that very important book. And if I don't see you before, maybe I'll see you in a year and a half when you're halfway through uh, this uh, quest that you're on. So again, thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much, Alan. It's been a real joy. So again, feel free to contact Ellie at emw78 at cam.ac.uk. Uh, send her your questions. Um, also, please do pray for her. And uh, please do pray for, for me and this podcast as we try to help people to think biblically in order to think, uh, in order to live biblically. I was really, uh, I was touched and, and somewhat convicted by what Ellie had to share about her perspective on the book of Job. Hope it has the same kind of impact on your life. If you want to contact me, you can do so at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. That's comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And again, please don't forget to subscribe like, and share. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.